we are continuing our series on the good life. We started this series last week, and, and it's re- redefining the good life is what the series is called. And I was, I was thinking about, about life in general just, just yesterday because I discovered, much to my excitement, that these jeans fit me. They haven't fit me in about a year and a half. I was, I'd apparently packed on a few pounds. And from all of my walks with our dog, Toby, all of a sudden these jeans fit me again. So I was like, yes, praise the Lord. But that comes with a caveat. Um, a few weeks ago, I believe I was, I was preaching one of the last sermons in First John. And I made this little in-the-moment comment that I think that there's something wrong with my Bible because, and people from one of my small groups laugh about that as they hear it. I think I heard Callie laughing. I think there's something wrong with my Bible because I was reading the end of First John and my brain was breaking as I was reading it. Well, I think what's happening is I'm getting old. I, I'm, I'm right at that point and you're like, oh my goodness, really? We couldn't tell by your missing hair. No, yes, I am starting to get past that point when things go wrong. So I have to use my digital Bible because apparently... The tiny Bible with the tiny writing is too much for me to read. I don't quite need bifocals yet. <sighs> I don't need them yet. But I feel like that is on the cusp. So in life, we have both the good and the bad. The good being that I can wear jeans that I thought I, were, I was done with. And the bad being that I'm losing my vision again. So we began last week talking about how the good life is the life of glory. That is a life of glory, and specifically, the good life is a life that pursues God's glory and seeks to glorify him. Everyone who talks about the good life, in a way, talks about glory. But usually, the glory is not for God. It's for self, or it's for other people, or it's set on just being happy within itself. But when we talk about the good life as a church and as believers— We are talking about a life that just loves God's glory. It loves to see him praised. It loves to see him worshipped. It loves to see his name exalted throughout the land. And it loves to give him glory. The question we're going to ask this week is how do we live the good life? If the good life is the life we want to live then we need to ask, how do we live that life? How do we live a life that pursues the glory of God and glorifies God? Now, last week, Dave took a survey on Facebook. I didn't want to follow him in doing that, so I just kind of thought by myself, how do people live the good life? And people answer that a lot of different ways. They'll answer it just like, you know, to have a good life To do that, you need to do some things. You need to do some things to get to the good life. Maybe you need to find a job that you just love, that you're just so in love with, love what you do, and you'll never work a day in your life. Maybe, you know, if you get a great education, you will be so filled with knowledge, and you'll find a job that completely satisfies you that it's just, life will be great, and you'll be amazed. Maybe living the good life is taking your family and making them get from this, from point A to point B, going from kind of shambles or dysfunctional and making them perfect. Maybe it's getting a great hobby and perfecting your craft 
in that hobby. Maybe it's buying the perfect house or the house that is in the perfect location that you can improve. Maybe it's becoming great volunteers. There's a lot of hows that we have in our life that we say, this is how I will live the good life. This is how I will get the good life. This is how I will step into the good life. Would you believe me if I told you that the answer to the question, how do we live the good life, the answer that everybody gives, no matter how different it is, that the answer is all essentially the same? Do you believe that? That every person's answer to how to live the good life is essentially the same. Because every single answer centers on one word. Love. It's always about love. Loving what you do. Loving what you have. Loving how you get there. Loving the work. Like it's, it's always about love when people talk about the good life. But the problem comes in when people detail their answer, when they start to discuss what that actually means. So the question we are going to answer today is how does love fit in the good life? How does love fit in the good life, the true good life, the life that is lived with God? And I'm just going to answer it. It's our big idea. This is the answer, but we have to work it out. The answer is, it's a big idea, love is how we live the good life. You're like, you've already said that. Yes, I have. But love is how we live the good life. And today we're going to start by looking, we're going to work our way through a passage. It's Luke 10, 25 through 28. And you'll notice the passage about the Good Samaritan. But this passage, and specifically the text that sets it up, gets us in the right mindset to understand this how. We're going to read Luke 10, 25 through 28. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, and he's speaking to Christ, to Jesus, What shall I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Pray with me. Lord God, we desire to live the good life. It is imprinted in our nature, this, this hunger, this thirst, this, this longing that our life would mean something, that our life would produce something, that our life would lead to something. And so we ask that as we examine the good life and as we define it this morning, that you would help us define it according to your truth. And that as we go out today, we would live the good life how you want us to, how you have commanded us to, and how we were meant to in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. To answer how we live the good life, 
and how love fits in the good life, we have to understand how we got where we are now. How we got from where we started to this point now in our life. And the beginning of this situation starts at creation. It starts all the way back at creation. And specifically, the creation of mankind, the creation of human beings. And the reality is that when we were made, we were made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. Every human being, no matter how big or how small, no matter what you think of them, they were created in the image of God. And it says, in the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they were created. So at our inmost being, every human is a tiny snapshot of a portion, of a characteristic of God. We were created in God's image, so we are little pictures of God. To, to explain this, think of it this way. For the older crowd, think of it as a Polaroid. You've all seen Polaroids. Think of it as a Polaroid of the Grand Canyon. If you show someone a Polaroid of the Grand Canyon, you'll say, they'll say, Oh, that's, that's neat. It's the Grand Canyon. But they won't actually understand it. They'll have a little picture. They'll get an idea. But they won't fully understand it. For the younger crowd, if you're like, what in the world is a Polaroid? I don't understand that. For the younger crowd, think of a GIF. Those little animated pictures of a skydiver. You see a person kind of falling from the sky. You don't really understand the fear and the sound and everything that goes into it. But you understand there's wind. It's windy. And that's kind of what skydiving is like. And that's what we are. We are little pictures of God that tell people a little bit and leave out a ton of stuff. We leave out so much, but we give people, by being image bearers of God, a little bit of information about God. And the attribute that we display in miniature that is of importance today is love. That God is love and that the love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit freely share with one another forever and are satisfied in and are overflowing into one another, we have been made to resemble that. We have been made to display that. We have been made so that people would see that love. And that's the first thing we need to know today. We were made for love by love. God is love, and we've been made in his image. But sadly, along with this love-bearing image that we have been given, we carry the corruption of sin. After we are created, we proceeded to fall. So we have been tainted. We are stained. And our love isn't the love that it should be. And along with this, this taint, we've also been cut off from the source of this love, from God himself. And it's this, the tap, the well that we would run to, has been closed off and forgotten about. So in us is this need for love, is this love, is this, this image of God, but it's hungry for more love, and it doesn't quite know what to do with its own love. It doesn't know what to do with it. And so we start running amok with all this love, trying to figure out what to put it on and what to take it from, and we're not quite sure what we should do. Last, a few weeks ago, we had Easter Sunday, and a few of you lovely parents 
Well, was this on Easter? Well, a few of you lovely parents give your children Easter baskets before, before church, and the kids shovel in the candy. And when we have CP kids, I can pretty much tell like clockwork which is the week that the kids have taken in more than their weight in candy. Because they become little monsters. Like, they are crazy as they're running around, talking at a mile a minute, and not quite sure what to do with themselves. And so, I, I love them, but it's like, oh, you must have had candy today. Oh, yeah, you did. You ate a bunch, I bet. I bet you're feeling really good now. Hope you feel better later. And so, they'll be taking in all this candy because they think, this is the best thing for me. I love candy. Blah, 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 blah. And they shovel it down. And they think that they're feeling great, but really it's going to cause them to have a stomach ache or have issues later. And that's how we are with love. We think things are great that we're pursuing, and we start pulling all this stuff towards us, but it only ends up damaging us. It only ends up causing us hurt. And that's the second thing that we need to know. We have screwed up definitions at times, when it comes to love. We have screwed up definitions, we have screwed up sources, and we have screwed up means. What that means is that we define love, and we say, love means this, and we're wrong. And then we say, I get love from this, and it's a bad place to get love from. And we say, this is how I show love. And it's a bad way to show love. And this corruption that we have in us is so rampant that we don't even know what's happening. And we just continue on in it, and we hurt ourselves. But amazingly, God knew this struggle and gave us one of the greatest gifts we had. I was making a list this week, and I thought of, like, what are some of the best things we have that we have been given by God? And number one was Jesus, of course. Number one, Jesus came, and he died for our sins, and he gave us new life. That's, that's amazing Number two, I had written down, you know, it's amazing that we've been forgiven. Number three, it's amazing that God hasn't just judged us and destroyed us for sin, that he allowed us to continue. And then number four, I was thinking, you know what else is amazing? God gave us commandments. He gave us commands. It's one of the most loving things he did for us. Now, you might say, like, that's crazy. How can you say that you love and are thankful and are amazed by the commands? How could could the commands be a loving thing that God gave us? And the thing is, we we think that because sometimes the, the hyperbole and the statements of Paul in the New Testament and the other disciples about the problems of the commands kind of twists us. But we say that because we don't know what it would be like to not have them. We don't know what it would be like for them to be absent. If you have a hard time when you read the Psalms and the psalmist says something like, oh, in your commands I delight every day. And you say, why would you delight in the commands, psalmist? Imagine what life would be like without them. Imagine what life would be like if you lived in a tent on your own in a village with no police force with no, no weapon to protect yourself with, with just your, your, possibly your sheep flock, and you expect everybody in that village to work together. Probably be a little bit scared. But if there are commands that tell people, this is how you are to love one another. 
This is how you are to live with one another. This is what it means to be a society. You would think to yourself, I'm really glad that I have these commands. Thank you, God, that we have these commands. I'm so amazed that you gave them to us. It's kind of like speed limits. When we are younger, we think roads would be better without speed limits. We think, you know, these speed limits, they are such a drag. And some of us, even in our older age, think this too. Like, ah, I'm on the interstate. Why can't I do 120 miles an hour? It should be fine. It should be fine. But as you grow up and as you see more and more of life, you start to think, like, oh, it's really dangerous when people drive 50 miles an hour on a 30-mile-per-hour road. It's really scary when someone's walking on the side of the road and a car rushes past them. It's really, it's really troubling when you see an accident. And it's really, really terrible when you hear that someone has passed away because of reckless driving. We look at commands at first and we think, man, what a bummer that our God would give them. But then when we start looking at them and think about what they truly are, what a gift they are. We can start to love them and see that they are a help to us. Which is our third thing to know. That God has worked to get us a right definition of love. That he recognizes that we were made for love. He recognizes that we have fallen and have screwed up definitions and sources and means for love. And he has worked to make love and make our life clear again, to provide clarity. And he does that. He started by doing that through the commandments, but then he completed it by sending Christ to satisfy the commandments and give us the life that we needed so we could walk in them. You see, God has given us commands as guides for us to get back to him and his righteousness. They're no longer judges that are there to destroy us and embarrass us and cause us to stumble. They are guides. They are teachers. And they are, they are there to do two things. First, they take our love off its current focus, which is self. Love the Lord your God, not love yourself. Love the Lord your God. And second, they are giving us a means of where to take our love. Love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just look at that a little bit more. First, they take our love off its current focus and they put love where it belongs, on God and people. That's what's happening in the beginning of this parable. The lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to live my life best both now here on earth and have life eternal with God. What do I need to do? And Jesus replies to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer is very smart. He studied the law. He knows it. All the law hinges on these two commandments that are found in the scriptures. And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, yes, you you get it. You have the right answer. You know what to do. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
And if the story ended there, it would be great. But thankfully, God knows our heart, knew this man's heart, and told more of the story. Because the lawyer goes on. And he says in verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? It's a very lawyerly question to ask. You know what? You've given me guidelines. You've said, you know, love is loving God and loving neighbor. But I have to get some clarity. Because what does neighbor even mean? You know, is it just the person next door? Is it the people I like? Is it the people I get along with? Who do I need to love? And so Jesus answers him. He says, A man was going down to Jerusalem from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took, up, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. After telling the story, Jesus looks at the lawyer and asks him this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, the command is love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't matter if you hate them. It doesn't matter if you don't get along with them. It doesn't matter if it's someone who is antagonistic, annoying, or maybe even an enemy. You know what the, the Samaritan was to the Israelites. It was an enemy. And here, the story is about this man who was an Israelite, going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's passed by a priest, and he's passed by a Levite, the leading religious people, and they ignore him. His actual neighbors ignore him. The people that were closest to him in society walk by and assume, you know what? We don't need to love him. But his enemy, Samaritan, a person who would have been antagonistic to a person from Israel or from, this, from Jerusalem, comes and cares for him, loves him, shows him compassion, pays his way, does everything that he needs to do. And so Jesus rightly asks, which one is the neighbor? And the, defini- the definition of neighbor, according to Jesus, is not bound by the location, but it's bound by the love. And he's saying, your neighbor is everyone you come in contact with. 
You need to love everyone you come in contact with and all that are here. You need to show them mercy. And the reality is, when we look at at this way, these two commands are quite easy. They're quite easy to understand. You have two things set before you. Love Love the Lord your God, so figure out what it means in your life to love God, and then figure out what it means in your life to love your neighbor. And guess what? Everyone is your neighbor. So you have to figure out with each of those people what it means to love them and what it means in your life and in your heart when you aren't loving them. Those two commands are the keys to the good life, the true good life. They are the means for us to get to the glory of God by loving God and give glory to God by loving neighbor. They do this because they are free to in the gospel. They give us this means to glorify God because they aren't that judge anymore. They are guides. They are teachers that show us the best way to live, which is number four. Love is the how of glorifying God. Love is the how of the good life by glorifying God. So how does love and the command take us there? And this is where we're going to finish. First off, loving God centers our worship and our affections on God. There's this amazing little book by Timothy Keller, and it's called, I believe it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And it's a great book about this aspect of how do we get outside of the mentality that we have been trained for in this world. We're told you are special, you are amazing, everything's great about you, go and live. And it's created a really selfish society, a really self-centered society. So Tim Keller is communicating the way to love God is not to think less of yourself, but rather to think of yourself less. The goal is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. And that starts by loving the Lord our God. By loving God first, it centers our worship and it centers our affections on God. It centers our whole worldview on God. He gets worship, he gets praise, he gets attention, he gets our first love, and in return, we get him. And we get grace and mercy, and we get clarity of what to do in this life. And in getting him, we get that taste of glory that Dave was preaching about that last week. The glory we have longed for. The glory we we seek, and the glory that has been absent. Our tendency is to aim inward. Our tendency is to think of self. Our tendency is to be concerned about Scott first. That's what the lawyer did. The lawyer, as described in verse 29, is said to desire to justify himself. That was his goal in this question. His goal was self-preservation. What do I need to do to get eternal life? So he seeks to justify himself by clarifying I need it spelled out. What do I need to do in order to love my neighbor? Give me the four steps that loving my neighbor looks like. But loving God means we stop thinking about that. 
we stop thinking so much about justifying ourselves and we start thinking about God and what it means to live these commands before God. And then you take up loving our neighbor and it gives us a practical means to love people to the glory of God. It's the amazing thing about these commands. If you've ever ever wondered to yourself, God, what does it mean to glorify you? God's answer is, love me and love your neighbor. That's the means that you glorify me in this world. You figure out what it means to love me in your life, and then you figure out what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor gives you active, practical means to glorify God. And then in doing that, you reveal to the watching world the glory of God on display as you take his love and spread it around and say, this is not from me. I am not capable of loving you this way, but God has called me to it and he has enabled me for it through the gospel. And how you love your neighbor is the joy each of us has to figure out. This week, I told this story in, um, in our youth group this week, and so, and Hannah didn't seem bothered by me telling it there, so I get to tell it here too, because that's, that's the wonderful thing. This week, me and Hannah had a fight, and it was a good fight. It's one of those, like, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, we still got it, still spar. Um, no, a good fight, a fight in the, in the Strubing household right now usually involves a lot of talking and a lot of silence. That's usually how it goes, is there'll be a buildup of discussion and then silence after that. And so we were discussing something, and Hannah was asking me a lot of questions. I, had already, I was already stressed out about a subject, so I, I went to her and started talking to her about the subject, and she brought up more and more questions, which stressed me out more and more, and I got to the boiling point, and I said, that's enough talking, which amazingly worked. Like, I mean, I didn't think I had the power. I didn't know I had a mute button Um, but apparently I do. Don't recommend using it, guys. I do not recommend using it. But so I said, you know, that's enough. And I realized as I said it, I'm like, oh, that wasn't the tone I wanted to use. That was kind of snappish. All right. And I proceeded to downward spiral, and I can't believe I just said that. So when I downward spiral, I do what any um, red-blooded American male does, and that's read four to six chapters of Job and just kind of sit by yourself while your dog is nearby. So I proceeded to read a bunch of Job and, and think, and Hannah proceeded to type ferociously as she continued to have the conversation with me without me present on her laptop. So we have this back and, we have this back and forth, and then we're in a fight. And it's amazing how much that fight affected our dog. Our dog proceeded to be crazy the rest of the day he couldn't handle the silence. But so as we're having this fight, we just, we're just not talking. We're not talking. And in that silence, sin was rearing its ugly head. I don't know if you've had that kind of silence where you're just, where you can tell the difference between the voice that is from the Lord and the voice that is just, that's just Scott Strubing ultimate enemy of Scott Strubing, just seeking to destroy more and more. It's like, oh yeah, you were totally right, man. You did the right thing, snapping at her. How dare she 
not help you or listen to you, you just need to, you keep up the silence. The silence is great. That you're really showing her. You're showing her with the silence, and I bet any minute she's going to come apologize, and you're just going to be, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. And so I had this voice talking to me throughout the rest of the day. And, and so I'm trying to combat it with a little bit of Job. For some of you, you'd be like, why would you read Job? I'm weird. I'm a weird person. Just trust me. So I'm reading Job, and we get to dinner time, and I, I feed the dog while he's being a monster, and play with him while he's being a monster, Clear, still not talking. And we get to dinner, and we have an awkward dinner of not really talking, but talking a little bit. And then afterwards, we go and sit down. And I thought, I thought about this text. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you would think, love your neighbor has nothing to do with implications for marriage. It does. Because my wife is my neighbor. And the immediate act of love was to remember that even when I don't think I'm wrong, and I'm probably still wrong because I've got blinders on, I need to apologize first. It's one of the best things that we learned when we were working through our, our um, pre-marriage counseling with Dave and Natalie Weiss, who were amazing, but also in reading, we read two books together before we got married, um, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller um, and This Momentary Marriage by John Piper. And both of them stress the importance of centering your marriage on the gospel and then forgiving one another out of the gospel. And so as we were, as we were sitting there at, at the, on the couch, and I'm thinking about love, love the Lord your God, Scott, and love your neighbor as yourself, I stuck at that spot and said, but I want her to apologize first. And I thought about the command again. Because the reality is, was this the good life? No. This is not how I get to the good life, by fighting with my wife for four to five hours. Stopped. And I finally repented and confessed in prayer and repented. And I turned to Hannah and I said, I'm sorry that I snapped. That was, unfor- that was not what I should have done. That was the re- in an inappropriate response, and I'm sorry. And Hannah re- apologized as well. And then we proceeded to talk about things we had talked about a while ago, which was communication, and that when I'm telling something like that, I just need her to be there. I just need her to hear it. I'm not looking for her to give me a bunch of answers I already know, which is very strange, because usually it's the other way. The guy doesn't the guy is the one that gives all the answers. But in our situation, that's kind of what happens. And so, for me, the answer to how do I love my neighbor as myself came with, you apologize to your wife, even when you think you're right. Because you probably were wrong in some way, and I was. And so that's the question we need to start answering. How do we love our neighbor as ourself? And we have to start viewing everyone as our neighbor. And start saying, you know, that neighbor, that neighbor gets on my nerves. Well, you still love them. And you still help them when they come over needing something. That person's just really burning me out. Well, you still love them. And you still care about them. That person is super easy to get along with. 
And I could have small talk with them all the time. Is small talk really loving them? So there's all of these questions that we can ask ourselves to, how do you get to the good life? You just answer, how in my life do I need to love God more? And how in my life do I need to be loving my neighbors? Because I'm sure you, like me, go through these same things and are given plenty of opportunities to answer that question and answer that question well. Because statistically, there are about 7.35 billion-ish neighbors that you have the opportunity to love. And you're going to be dealing with it the rest of your life. And so the question is, when you approach the how of the good life, are you going to approach it with the type of love that looks to God and looks to neighbor and says, I'm going to love you? Or are you going to look at the good life and say, my definition of love centers on me. I am going to love me by focusing on doing everything I can to get this career, and no matter what happens, by focusing on, I need this stuff, and I will do whatever it takes to get that stuff, and then life will be good. Or, you know what, I need this education, and forget everybody I know, that's all I care about. The good life does not view living that way. The good life loves God and loves people. Love is the answer to the how. Love is the answer to the how. But the object, what that love is placed on, is more important than the action. How do we live the good life? We live the good life by loving God and people. Until we start there, our love will never be loving. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your grace. And we just pray that as, as we go forward in our lives, and as we seek to live good lives, no, there's nobody here who wants to live a bad life, but that as we go forward and live good lives, that we would live good lives according to your definition. That we would live good lives that love according to your definition. And that we would live good lives that glorify you by looking at you and looking at our neighbor and loving them and loving you more than ourselves. It's in your name we pray. Amen.